The following audio is from Grace Fellowship of Westerville. To learn more about our church, please visit our website at www.gracefcwesterville.org. Well, if you'll turn to, uh, I guess I'll have you turn to Mark 10 to begin with. Um, I want to remind you that we're talking about discipleship in this series, so we're really focusing on the life of a child of God after they've accepted Christ, after they've become a Christian. However, the reality is, is when you look at a life and what it should look like the way God has marked it out for us, there may be some who begin to realize, you know, I just might not have the relationship that it's talking about. So hopefully this message is for you, saved or unsaved, but I want you to understand primarily we're we're talking about Christians. And, and there's a real problem because of that today, because there is, there is a great concern about the modern gospel as it's being preached and taught today. Today, believing in Christ means hardly anything. Uh, there's no repentance. There's no change of life. Following Christ is, is easy for many. And today's gospel seems to be more of a synthetic gospel, uh, where Christ's encounter uh, with each one of us is thought to be something that it's not. Now, I want to begin with this passage because I want to begin by talking about a salvation and, and then lead into it. Mark chapter 10 is that famous discourse that Jesus has with a rich young ruler. And beginning in verse 17, he says, And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up, knelt before him, and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do? To inherit eternal life. And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. So the first thing Jesus does is confront him on who he really thinks Jesus is. He's not just a good teacher, he's of course that, but he's the living God. And so Jesus calls that into question right away. And he said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and your mother. So what Jesus is doing here is the man said, what must I do? All right, if you're thinking in that mode, here's what you need to do. Keep the law. And of course, we know that's impossible. That's why Jesus came, to fulfill the law, to make a way for sinners to be able to come to Christ through Christ alone. And so Jesus brings that to him. And so the man says to him, teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. Okay, so let's make it personal. Jesus looked at him and loved him. Now, that little two words is generally just slipped past when looking at this story. Jesus looked at him and loved him. In other words, Jesus was passionate about this man who's still stuck in human reason, who's still looking at things of what must I do, who's still focusing on him as just a teacher, and Jesus shows him compassion, and he's about to tell him what he must do. He said to him, there's one thing that you lack, one thing lacking. Go sell all that you have and give it to the poor, 
and you will have treasures in heaven. And come follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Then Jesus turns to the disciples and he says, How difficult it is, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at these words, but Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished, and they said to him, Then who can be saved? You see, they're all in the, what must I do? And isn't that human nature? Isn't that the great deterrent that man has in coming to Christ? Because we have been ingrained from the time of our youth, we have to do something to achieve this. Jesus looked at them and he said, With man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Now, first things first. Was Jesus preaching against wealth? Well, of course not. There's wealthy people in the Bible, and there's all kinds of passages. In fact, consider Psalm 17, 14. From men by your hand, O Lord, from men of the world whose portion is in this life, you fill their womb with treasure. They are satisfied with children, and they have their abundance uh, to their infants. Psalm 112, verses 1 and 3. Praise the Lord. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commandments. Verse 3. Wealth and riches are in his house, and his righteousness endures forever. Psalm 144, verse 13. May our, may our granaries be full, providing all kinds of produce. May our sheep bring forth thousands and ten thousands in our fields. Luke 6, 38. Give and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together and running over will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use it, will be measured back to you. And of course, this passage is talking about judging others and, and due course there. The point is this. It's not the riches that are wrong. It's the desires of the heart. And Jesus knew the man's heart was in his riches. And if God can't replace the focus of your life, then you have no place with God. For every, anyone, it could be anything could be riches, could be relationships, could be desires of our own hearts getting in the way. So when we come to discipleship, what is the cost? When a person becomes alerted to the teaching about cost in Christ's discourses, he's amazed how extensive it is. Jesus did not make the uh, follow. Make, Jesus did not make following him easy, contrary to many modern preaching. Following him involved radical life change. Everything he said about discipleship implied a cost in the walk with Christ. Luke chapter 9, verse 22 through 23, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. 
You see, the reality here and what he was trying to get through to the rich young ruler is if you truly want Christ, then he must come before anything. That's why in the scriptures we read that to be a disciple, you need to hate your father, hate your mother. Well, he's not preaching hate. He's saying that he must be number one. And in so doing, all the things of this world now take second place. Luke chapter 14, verse 28 through 33. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with his 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Tough words. Tough words. And according to this, there is a cost to discipleship. Now, This sends up a red flag in some evangelical circles because the mention of cost sounds like a works-based salvation, which is, of course, soundly denounced in Scripture. Any gospel that is not sola scriptura, according to the Scriptures alone, sola fide, by faith in Jesus Christ alone, and sola gratia, by grace of God alone, is a false gospel. Jesus was not advocating a working for it. It was all of grace. So let me just take a few minutes and let's look at those three Latin terms just to make sure we have a clear understanding here. Sola Scriptura. This means by Scripture alone. It affirms that the written Word of God is the only fully authoritative rule for Christians. Particularly, it is supreme over any church teaching or traditions. And if it's supreme, it is supreme over me and my thinking. And that means that I must give up anything in my thought or practice that is contrary to Scripture if I would follow Jesus completely. This is what the Apostle Paul was talking about in 2 Corinthians 10, 4 and 5. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. We must pay the cost of letting go and everything that is contrary to Scripture. But when you think about it, what kind of cost is it when what you gain is the glory of heaven? So the idea is that if Scripture is the sole preeminence of who we are, it is the knowledge that leads us to salvation through the Holy Spirit. It is the knowledge that allows us to function and walk and live according to what Jesus wants. What can we possibly lose? Sola Scriptura also embraces the doctrine of repentance. For repentance means turning away from sin to follow Jesus. There's a great error in modern modern church at this point. When the gospel is preached, it is customary to speak about forgiveness, saying, 
that we must confess our sins, and that is true for sure. In fact, 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The idea here, of course, is the Christian who falls into sin. You remember last week we talked about the washing of feet when Jesus washed the feet and how the image is taken from the Oriental where they, of someone going to another person's for dinner would take a full bath and cleanse himself, but on the way to his friend's house, walking with sandals in the dirty road, his feet would get dirty. So it was customary when he got to his friend's house that they would wash the feet. They wouldn't wash the whole body again, just the feet. And that was the point of Jesus' foot washing, that they were already cleansed in Christ. But they need to be washed of the daily sins and repent and turn to Christ to stay on track. And, and this is for those, those Christians. However, the gospel also requires repentance, which is not mere confession of sin, but a turning away from it as well. The Greek word for repentance actually means to change the mind. Repentance was the burden of John the Baptist preaching. In Luke 3, 3, And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. When Jesus began his public ministry, his message was in Mark 1, 15, saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Later, the disciples went out preaching, Mark 6, 12. So they went out and proclaimed to the people that the people should repent. People decla or Peter declared in Acts 3, 19, Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out. On Mars Hill, Paul said in Acts 17, 30, The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. So there's a repentance for salvation, but there is also repentance that's ongoing. You see, when we come to Christ, we recognize we're sinners in need of a Savior. And by accepting Christ, we are turning away from sin to Christ. But when discipleship begins after that, we begin to learn the Scriptures, and we begin to understand the Holy Spirit begins to work in our hearts, we begin to see other areas in our life that need to be repented of, areas that need to be turned. And it's ongoing. It never ends. There are times when the child of God falls, makes mistakes, realizes it, repents, gets back on track. 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, He's able and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So repentance is important when you understand what the Scripture is teaching. What Scripture commands must be affirmed. So when someone accepts Christ as their Savior and commits to be Christ's disciple, they are committing their mind, their heart, their spirit to be surrendered to the leading of the Holy Spirit on an ongoing daily life. Number two, sola fide. This teaches that salvation is by the work of Christ received through faith alone, not of works, lest any man should boast. Salvation is a living union with Christ who is both Savior and Lord, and it involves a commitment to Him. A man must be content to be thought ill of. When you commit to Christ, sola fide, and you realize that it's by grace through faith alone, you know that the world's going to come after you. 
you know that Satan will stop at nothing to knock you off track. He's lost you for eternity. Once you've accepted Christ, you're sealed into the day of redemption. And you know, I always say, if you're not good enough to save yourself, you're not good enough to keep yourself saved. It is the Spirit of God that seals you once you come to Christ. So if Satan can't have you, all he can do is destroy your testimony. And that's what his sole focus. So we must be content to understand what's going to happen. He must, your Christian must not think strange to be mocked, to be ridiculed, to be slandered, to be persecuted, and even hated. He must not be surprised to find his opinions or practices in religion despised and held up to scorn. He must submit to the thought of a fool by many. Do you remember the words of Christ in John 15, 20? Remember the words that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my words, they would also keep your words. To be a disciple, an honest disciple, will cost a man or woman favor with the world. Honest discipleship keeps our thinking on God's track. It keeps our minds and our hearts under God's influence, even when the storms rage. What has happened in our country today? We know that the nation was founded on biblical principles. There's no doubt about that. Many of our founding fathers were Christians with big biblical principles, and those who weren't Christians were deists. They believed in God and a higher power, and they held up the Bible as its proof. And for over 200 years, the moral values of that teaching hung true. But in recent decades, abortion has been approved. Prayer has been taken out of the school. Universities are teaching a liberal theology that, that makes the Bible and the Scripture look inadequate. And so today, when we have in the public arena, and especially with social media... You look at the thought processes that people bring to bear and you scratch your head and you go, where is this coming from? I mean, how can people literally think that way? Well, this is just a very simple example of what happens to the mind and the heart when God's influence is removed. And this is why the child of God, being an honest disciple needs to devote themselves so clearly to the Scriptures. I had someone mention a few months ago uh, saying that you don't have to come to church to be a Christian. And I would agree with that. But an honest disciple wants to be under the preaching of the Word. An honest disciple wants to be in classes where they can learn, where the Holy Spirit can take the Word of God and train them in order to know what a pure life is all about. An honest Christian wants to be in Sunday school classes and small groups and in the influence of godly people. That's why the Scripture says, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves as is with some. Yeah, going to church... We can make that a legalistic thing. But where else are you going to find a concentration of godly people building up one another, teaching one another, and leaning on the Holy Spirit for his guidance? 
That's the important of understanding what's going on. And that's what's sadly lacking in the world today. And, and you know, as you follow social media, as I'm sure most of you do, some of you are smart enough and have cut it out. I get it. But you can really begin to understand how easy it will be for the Antichrist to take over when he comes to power. Because people will be mindless sheep being led to the slaughter. You and I, who have the truth, need to be willing to pay the cost to be in the word, to study, to conduct our lives, our families, our relationships, building up one another for the glory of God. One day we'll be taken out of this mess and we'll go to be with him forever. But while we're here, let's take many with us. Let's train others to be able to glory in the Savior who has made all things new to us. Number three, sola gratia. This teaches that salvation is by the grace of God alone with no mixture of human works added to it. Giving up our works is hard for many. It's ingrained in us. Many religions, many denominations train it into their people. Say so many prayers. Don't ever miss church. Do this, do that, do this, do that. That's not biblical salvation. No man is capable of saving themselves or earning anything to become a Christian. J.C. Ryle writes that there is a cost of being a disciple. He wrote, quote, There are enemies to be overcome, battles to be fought, sacrifices to be made, an Egypt to be forsaken, a wilderness to pass through, a cross to be carried, a race to be won. Being a disciple is the beginning of a mighty conflict and which it costs much to win the victory. But in all of this, we're not talking about salvation. We're talking about responding to salvation. Once Christ saves us, our response is obedience and a willingness to pay the cost of casting our desires to the side and making him Lord of our lives. Now, for many, that will institute no change. Your lives will continue, your jobs will continue, and God will begin to use you, and your ministry will fall in other areas. Some people are radically changed completely. They're taking out of one life and put into another. But the great thing about it is, is when God is at the center of it, it's the greatest joy, whether you're here or there, whether you stay home or go abroad. God has ordained all of us a purpose that only we can fulfill. Before the foundation of the world, it was marked out for us. So this is why Jesus himself urges us to count the cost. So let's analyze the cost for a minute. And Jesus' teaching about counting the cost, he points out that many fail to think the cost through. They start out in the direction of the Christian life with inadequate commitment and later pull back in times of difficulty. There are those in whom the seed of the word is sown and in whom it quickly springs up, 
producing an interest in spiritual things. But the cares of this world later rise like thorns to choke it out, or persecutions like the near eastern hot sun arriving to scorch it. You recall that when the people of Israel left Egypt, they left with great enthusiasm, great victory. But when they encountered dangers and deprivation and delays, they were discouraged and soon wanted to turn back. More than this, they complained against God and Moses, longing for the days of the leeks and the garlics of their former lives. How many do you know who start onto the scene and fire for God, and then before you know it, they're back in the world as if nothing had changed? As a result... Most of these individuals weren't allowed to even enter the promised land. When Jesus first came preaching the good news, many came out to follow him. They marveled at his words, they marveled at his miracles, and they followed him devotely. But then his teaching got a little stronger, got a little more pointed, and they began to chafe under the responsibility of what it meant to obey God. The more difficult his teaching appeared, the more they began to fall away. And then the scripture says in John 6, 66, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. I think it's interesting that he says many of his disciples, because I think there's a mixture here. We often look at that and think, well, these people weren't saved anyway. They were just in it for the miracles and the excitement and everything. And then when God got more pointed, they said, oh, Forget this, the miracles aren't worth it, and they left. But I believe there were a lot of believers who trusted Christ, who believed in him. That's why it says many of his disciples turned away. You see, an honest discipleship costs something. It costs us our own way many times. And I think this is made very clear in in the reference to Demas Uh, Demas had found fellowship with the gospel too costly. Uh, At the beginning, he was absolutely excited that Paul had given him an invitation to go with him on a missionary journey. And he went with Paul in great excitement. He worked alongside Paul. But then Paul wound up in prison and life got difficult and he couldn't handle it and he left. Paul would later comment about this in 2 Timothy 4.10. For Demas in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. You see, I think Demas was obviously a born-again man. He accepted the grace of Christ, and he was gung-ho. But the price was too costly. And when it really got difficult, he just walked away and went back to Thessalonica. So, what is the true cost. What must I pay to be a Christian? Well, the answer is that the cost has already been paid. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe, as the hymn goes. And I stress this again and again. You can pay nothing for your salvation. But there will be a personal cost to be an honest disciple. I must pay the price of self-righteousness. 
I forfeit my righteousness for his righteousness, which is perfect and imperishable. I must pay the price of those sins I now cherish. I must give them up in place of my sins, take his glory. Hebrews 12, 14, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without such, no one will see the Lord. I pay the price of giving up my understanding of life and replace it with his. I pay the price of commitment and constantly give over everything to him, even those nagging temptations that draw me aside so easily. I pay the price of my plans. I give to him all of my life and allow him to plan my life. I must pay the price of presenting my body a living sacrifice. Romans 12.1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers. Notice, brothers, not come to Christ, those who have come to Christ, those who are Christians. I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable God, which is your spiritual worship. Now, the literal translation in the Greek of spiritual worship is intelligent service. In other words, it's a thought-out choice. You are choosing to give yourself as a sacrifice to God after a well-thought-out decision. And when you understand who Christ is and what he's done for you and what the alternatives are, you look at the Scriptures the Holy Spirit leads you into all truth, and on the authority of the Scriptures, you say, God, here is my life. Let it be consecrated to you. Whatever you want, wherever you take me, I'm yours. I present my body a living sacrifice. I must pay the price of conformity to this world. Romans 12.2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. You see, in order to not be conformed to the world, you need to be transformed. And the only way you can be transformed is by renewing your mind with the word of God. But what is significant here is the next phrase, that by testing you may discern what the will of God is. You see, the cost of being an honest disciple is willing to be tested. But today, the preaching is, <clears throat> you don't need to be tested. Trust God. Have your best life now. Everything will be hunky-dory. That's not the gospel. The gospel all through it says, you will be tested. But when you renew your mind by the word of God, sola scriptura, and you allow it to take you over, when you're tested, you will know instantly what his will is. And you will be able to stand strong in the face of whatever God sends your way. Job 23.10, when he has tried me, I shall come forth as pure gold. You're never going to come forth as pure gold unless you know the path of God.
And you're never going to know the path of God unless you're in the Word of God and allowing the Spirit to renew your mind. From that point on, when the testings come, all they do is confirm in your mind, in your heart, yes, I'm on God's path. Yes, I'm following Jesus. And the winds may blow and the storms may rage and the heat may get turned up. But when the heat gets turned up, like pure gold, it's just removing the dross. All the junk is being brought to the top and it can be scraped off so nothing is left but pure gold. That's the life God has called every one of us to. That is the amazing grace that not only secures us for, from heaven, and not only pays all our sins, but actually gives us the privilege to have his life living inside us. And as you move through this world, no matter what people throw at you, whether they criticize you, make fun of you, like Christ, you know it's going to come. So what do you do? You pray for them. You love them. You show them great mercies. We see what's raging in our country today and around the world where all the things to promote sin is really what it is. To what, what it is about is taking the sting away from unregenerate people. To allowing them to be content in their life because after all, it's their right. One of the greatest tools Satan ever had. And that's how he dumbs the conscience. And when that rages back at you and I, and our, in our flesh, we're prone to stand up and fight, that's when you get down on your knees and pray. And you pray for these people. And you love them like Christ loved them. All through the scriptures in the New Testament, when Jesus was here, all he did was love in the face of ridicule. Just imagine hanging on a cruel cross, nails ripped through your hands and your feet, beaten and battered, and look to God and say, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Can you and I look at the world and their filthiness and their difficultness and say, God, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Break through. Open their hearts. May your spirit draw them to you. And can I be part of it? Can you use me to touch them? Whatever you want to put me through, whatever you bring into my life, hey, if I can be your glory in your hands, amen, let it be. That's what will change people. That's what will change. And God will bring us to those people that he's called to himself. And you and I can be an incredible instrument in the hands of an awesome God. You must be willing to be tested and pay a price. Jesus not only stands above us and receives our worship, but he is the one who stooped so low for us, got beneath us to serve us. He is the kind of treasure who did not regard equality with God to be grasped, but emptied himself, 
taking on the form and being born in the likeness, in our likeness. And as human, he humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross, Philippians 2, 6 through 8. And all of us are called to have that same heart, to give ourselves over as he did, to take the cross upon us and walk. This is the kind of Savior He is. This is the kind of Savior for whom we would count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, Philippians 3.8. Are we willing to count everything as dung, literally, what he says, for the excellency of Christ? God has highly exalted him and given him a name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, Philippians 2, 9 through 11. He's the kind of treasure who gladly serves us, who gladly left the glories of heaven and came down on this earth and gave his life to serve you and I. What less can we give him? other than a life of praying that he meets our needs and takes care of our problems and helps us. An honest disciple, knowing the truth of Scripture, knowing what has been paid for them, is willing to pay any price, to walk any distance, to fall on any hardships, if it brings glory to the Savior. Because after all, he must increase. I must decrease. Somebody told me we need to get that engraved on the wall out there. I'm looking into it. To God be the glory. To God be the glory that he has called us to a life of service to him. Are we willing to be those servants? And Father, we thank you this morning for your amazing grace that just constantly has so much patience with us. We find ourselves so lost in this world so often, oftentimes not looking any different than the world around us. But Lord, we know the truth. You've given us sola scriptura, the scriptures to lead us. It's all by grace alone through the scriptures by grace through the mercies of Christ. By grace, you've saved us and set us apart. May we now be willing to follow the call that you've put on our hearts and lives, that through all things, the world might see in us Jesus Christ in the life that is available to all. I thank you, Lord, for what you're going to do in the hearts of all of us. And I pray that you would give us a surrendering spirit for your glory and grace. And I ask this in the name of the Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. God bless.